Hello and welcome to another episode of Pride Reads. I'm Kevin Clare, your host. Today we're going to hear from S.A. Collins from his book, Beware Mohawks Bearing Gifts. Now in this novel, it's 1847, but in an alternative universe, New York City. William Mathis Hallett is a fashionable dandy of the Manhattan social set. His life is laid out before him, a world of soirees, riches and luxuries. Yet all he wants to do is find an adventure so deliciously wicked that it will satisfy his soul for eternity. Disguised in a lower-class manner into the notorious five points he goes, seeking that spark of adventure. That is, until it greets him in the form of his old schoolmates from Dartmouth College, a pair of Mohawk warriors who will upend his world. This is S.A. Collins reading from Beware Mohawks Bearing Gifts. Satan's Circus. The name alone conjures up a visage of villainy. My eyes took in the bright red effigy of Satan nailed to the doorway of the tavern, making no pretense as to what sort of clientele this establishment served. For gluttony and wickedness had made a home here. It still did little to keep me from my current quest. To be sure, as taverns went, she did not disappoint. The circus was not where one went to hone one's craft of skullduggery and malicious behavior. If you had to perfect your craft, you had best do it elsewhere. Only the most proficient sharks, wild cats, and beasts could call the circus their home. I could lay claim to none of that, though I did my best to blend in with the drags who called her home in the chance that some thread of an adventure would present itself. Somehow, I'd become somewhat of a regular, clever enough to keep my nose clean and not falling in with any of the gangs who controlled the points, I navigated these treacherous waters. Though, if pressed, there could be little in the way of my being able to entirely explain how all of this was accomplished. A pastiche of luck, concealment, and all the bottom of a braggadocio had allowed me to slip in and out of her timbered halls. There were moments where I almost thought, despite my wearing clothing of a lowly station amongst them, that a cloak of invisibility had shielded me from them all. No one seemed to take notice unless I wanted to be noticed which, for the most part, I did not. From the moment anyone entered the circus, their senses were accosted in such a manner that, if unprepared, would bring the strongest man to his knees. People who drank much and bathed even less peppered her halls and floors. The putridity of the smells was second only to the sounds piercing your ears, a raucous cacophony of braggarts and riffraff. She is one of the busiest taverns in all of New York. As I made my way to the barkeep to order a drink, I watched every conniving and devious cutthroat and the harlots who hung on to them like leeches sucking the men dry, caught up in their usual routine of either getting drunk or getting someone else drunk so as to take advantage of their inebriation. Their game was always afoot. Like maggots over carrion, the tavern was pressed to her walls with those who had picked at the fetid remnants of life. Gold painted onto fixtures of the hall had been tarnished by her clientele, soiling it to a dull hue that they left behind. I could not help thinking that on her opening day she no doubt had been quite glorious. Looking at her now, it was clear she was but a tawdry remnant of her bejeweled past. 
As I secured my seat with drink in hand, my eyes rode over the circus. She boasted two levels, and the only places where a body could not occupy a spot were the large round columns running the gamut from floor to the second story above. Though many tried to cling to them from time to time, if only to find some respite against the constant flow of hellions bent upon consuming you and discarding your carcass in its wake. Music played continuously from a couple of piano players, who alternated at banging away at the keys with little ear to the line of the tune they played. For the most part, the music went either enjoined in a drunken and off-tune chorus or ignored in its entirety. Unlike my normal life in Manhattan High Society, I was all too aware that fisticuffs and knifings were the standard entertainment fare here, and people took more notice if the evening progressed and bodies had not piled up. No one would spare a tear for the lack of their presence. The points did not permit you to care about anyone except yourself. My eyes took note of this myriad of immigrants as they scratched at one another and at life, for they did everything to eke out an existence for themselves and on these shores. In all of the commotion, it would have been difficult to spot an oddity within the torrent of drunkenness, save for one spot. A single well of calm stood out from the rest of the establishment, a darkened alcove and its inhabitants on the far side of the tavern to the left of the barkeep. This alcove held my interest, the sole purpose of why I came back to the points and the circus time and again. Having tried many of the other pubs and taverns within the points, I turned to this very tavern in the hopes of observing something that deviated wildly from the normal cut purse fare. An adventure so decidedly wicked and filled with such a sense of raw mystery as to satiate my soul for a lifetime. The gentleman occupying the far alcove, no doubt the key to such an undertaking, held my attention captive. For the past four nights, the events surrounding these men varied little. They would sit in the alcove, each barely visible in the subdued light. The first thing I noted was how out of place they seemed where everyone else bore the drab clothing of their lowly station. From what I could discern of these men's appearance, they seemed highly financed and respectable, as evident in the richness of their clothing, an island of wealth amidst the disenfranchised. Ensconced there, silent and immobile, casting a wall of dark stoicism, they did little to dissuade me of my course. Indeed, their behavior did everything to secure my thoughts in the reverse. No service came to their table, and they made no attempt to gain the interest of a barmaid to change that. They merely sat, waited, and watched. The longer I observed them, the more intrigued I was by their presence and the great length everyone else went not to take any notice of them. These men, mysterious creatures confined in that darkened alcove, signaled to all around that they alone occupied the top of the food chain, predators who preyed on other predators. The alcove possessed only one source of light, a tiny candle jammed into a singular glass container. This poor excuse of a flame sputtered as if it gleaned some prescient knowledge of the men's depravity as it struggled to cast some illumination against the three dark figures in close quarter. As far as I could tell, the only clear element in view, illuminated by their right hands lying on the table, displayed the same signet ring of a double-headed eagle, a symbol I had seen before, but for the moment I could not ascertain where. 
It gave me my only clue for their true identity. From the outline that candle cast, they bore quite proudly their ostentatious attire, evident by the fullness of their black redding goats and framed in the soft ambient glow of the lanterns hanging above. This allowed me to take note of their black furred hats. These three men of mystery, large in stature for they nearly filled the alcove with their presence, always appeared around the same time each night, yet I could not recall the exact time of their arrival. Even the barkeep did his best not to look into the alcove when they occupied it. I believe I witnessed him visibly shudder last night as he had been watching the door and never spied their entrance, and yet, in that alcove, as sure as a tick of the clock, they sat. Lighting, never in abundant amounts in any of the Five Points establishments, as darkened endeavors require darkened quarters to operate, made it difficult to discern actions. This particular alcove exuded a darker purpose, one that kept even the more frightening miscreants of the points at bay. For some reason I could not fathom, I found myself in exactly the opposite disposition. I was riveted. For an hour or so I sat and just watched them, forcing myself to drink the cocktail of ale that ran more in common to what I imagined pig's piss water might have been. From what I overheard, the barkeep spent the prior day buying up the dregs from the other more well-established tavern's caskets of ale and tossed them together with little regard in the way of taste. For all I know, he probably did add his own urine to the swill. I heard one woman call it Satan's Arse Cleaner. She, being a frequent customer and a lady of the evening, no doubt meant the double entendre when she would yell to the barkeep to Gary the Sack. I did not think her commentary far off the mark in that account. Yet I continued observing these three who held me spellbound. I do not know if they took notice of my stare. I talked to no one, just sat there, tolerated the sack, and waited for my adventure to unfold, for I knew it would most certainly involve these three men. Around nine of the clock on each of the preceding nights, a young lad of no more than seven or eight strode into the tavern and walked right up to their table. No one stopped the lad. No one seemed to take notice of him at all, save for myself. He would speak to them but for a few moments. Then he would turn and leave the way he came. By the time I watched him go and turned back to watch what would happen next, the men would be gone. They seemed to vanish into thin air. The first time I witnessed it, I thought I imagined the whole routine. To be sure, I decided to gamble with my safety and change my position to be closer to their alcove so I could observe their departure on the following night, again to no avail. One moment there, and then the next gone. The lack of lighting in the alcove did not help matters much, to be sure, but whether I observed from near or far, the result was always the same. There one moment, gone the next. Well, tonight, I surmise, would provide a new game. I knew I had the right of it. What put me onto it, I could not say, but I felt it in the air. Tonight, the fifth night of this mystifying rendezvous, something was precariously at the tipping point. Disappointment would not be the order of the evening. I would soon discover the nature of their darker purpose. As I sipped what I could from the devil's swill, I realized the men had waited much longer for the boy to arrive. They had no perceptible change in their posture to warrant that feeling, but the moment seemed pressed just a little harder. A tightening of the screws, so to speak. The edge to them was palpable. 
Whatever news the boy brought this evening bore the utmost urgency for these three men. As if on cue, the boy arrived as he had before, despite seeing him the previous four nights. This time I bothered to take real notice of him. A lowly immigrant boy, of that there was no doubt. He bore his station in his tattered clothes marked with the filth of the points. But the boy's face, now there, a marked change revealed itself to me. Most of the youth in this part of Manhattan were relegated to cutthroat tactics to survive their childhood, what little there was of it. That harsh existence etched a tough life upon them at an early age. To be sure, this young lad took his life in his hands, scratching out what little he could to keep his head above the torrents of the points and to make it into his teen years. He would sort out his adulthood once he made it that far. Yet in his countenance he possessed an almost angelic repose, a proper-looking lad who had the singular misfortune of being cast amongst the poorest of the poor. He no doubt stood out from the more average fare of the point's child riffraff. For a moment, as my gaze followed him, I fancied seeing him cast in a different light altogether, one where he would have the finest clothing, food, and education. I guess what struck me most about him was that, save for our respective lots in life, he could be mean at that age. Undeterred by others, he strode with purpose to the darkened alcove, a young man willingly engaging what the more aggressive and salient of the cutthroats dare not do. He spoke with them very quickly, and the men stirred. For the first time, their faces came into the glow of the small candle's flame. It wavered, cowering a bit, as if their malevolence would snuff it from existence. Each man in that sputtering light was revealed to be a foreigner. Their hats, now fully in view, were their telltale giveaway. Once they made themselves known to me, I identified them fully. Russians. How odd to find them so far away from their home and in the points. What possibly could they have to do in New York in this house of iniquity? Though well-groomed, each of them possessed a darkness to their eyes that did not bother to feign even the slightest element of any good doing on their part. As the boy spoke, the men exchanged a silent but knowing look with one another, clearly taking whatever report he brought to them to their liking. The man in the middle said something to his companions, gave instructions to the boy, and the most amazing thing happened. The three got up. Their quick movement caused me to jolt, and I dropped the cup of swill I'd been tolerating. It clanged to the floor, though with the raucous sounds around me, no one took note. Cursing at my obvious blunder, I scrambled to retrieve the cup. However, by the time I had set it right onto the tabletop next to me, they had taken their leave of the tavern. I glanced at the door, only to catch a whisper of black redding goats sweeping through it and out into the night. At least this time, I had not lost them entirely. I scrambled from the table to the door and out into the square that teemed with activity. I surveyed every option of escape. A key point to survival in the points, you had to keep moving. A stationary man was a target for any number of assailants who would descend upon you and pick you apart. In some cases, that included the scattering of your bones as well. My sole quest at this juncture was to find the men and keep moving along in the stream of sharks and piranhas. I eyed the small marshy patch that stood as the points common. This tattered piece of bare earth where meager strands of grass dared to show themselves provided the only piece of undeveloped ground the points had to offer as a public meeting place, a place where many a man had met their demise. 
publicly, too. I did not wish my adventure to come to such a conclusion. The five points existed where Cross and Orange Streets intersected with Anthony, bordered on east and west by Water and Mulberry Streets, Hell's resident on Earth, if there ever was one. And now I found myself swimming in the rip current of their existence, and therein lay my current problem. I had labored too long to find the men. A woman who might have been quite striking, save for how life had dealt her blow upon blow, so she now bore a mere shadow of what God intended to be at birth to qualify as beauty. She made her way toward me. The purposefulness of her stride left little doubt that I had a target painted upon me, and I had only been on the sidewalk ten or so seconds. However, I discovered an added benefit to my notice of her advance. For just behind her, I spied the last of the gentlemen making their way down cross toward Mulberry. I surmised their goal lay beyond the points, but as for their exact destination, their plan escaped me. The wharf, perhaps? I did not know for certain. T'was the only thing I could think of lying in that direction. I tried in vain to circumvent the advancing barracuda harlot. Well, now, a strapping man like yourself, or are you off to in such a hurry? She stood in front of me, attempting to ply her trade, as if I could not deduce her ulterior motive. I would have definitely been put off by the stench of her teeth, which ran the gamut from putrid yellow to mildewing green and resolved themselves into decaying black. Her breath billowed about me, a mixture of the death that had already manifested itself within her, and whatever ails she had consumed thus far to mask, poorly, the putridity of her pre-decomposition. The harlot, for all intents and purposes, embodied a walking prostitute corpse. If I was clear on one thing, necromancy did not fall under the classification of adventure in my book. I possessed little stomach for death. Little did I know how wrong I was to be on this singular and salient point. Eh, not interested, I replied, with as much haste, and attempted to slip from the grasp of the, her left arm around my neck, entwined like a serpent hell-bent upon consumption. Adam should have kept a better eye on Eve, as the female sex had learned far too much from their reptilian encounter of biblical verse. Ah, oh, now, a viral buck of a man, how about a quick one in the alleyway? She ground her hip against my thigh. The frailty of her form along with her breath nearly made me wretch. However, I had not lost sight of her ulterior motive, which was to rob me of my money while she plied the dregs of her feminine wiles upon me. She did not think I noticed the sly movement of her right hand that had ingeniously held a small knife where she was actively slicing the threads along my pocket and the few coins stashed there. I said, no, thank you. I slipped from her grasp and she attempted to move on with my coins in her right hand. I promptly grabbed and applied the right pressure to her wrist and forced her hand to relinquish the coins back into my own. I smiled and moved on, the confident winner in our cut purse mazurka. I pushed my finger through the hole of the jacket, silently cursing. At some point I'd have to mend it, but pressed on lest my adventure slip away from me. And I had little intention of allowing that to pass. She stood there eyeing me with a knowing look, as if to memorize every last line of me so she could challenge me anon. Good luck with that, my dear. As I moved down Cross Street in pursuit of the men, I spread a glance back at her and noticed that while she took stock of her loss, 
She unwittingly broke the rule of the points as well, standing too long in one spot. For now, she was being accosted by some young boy who obviously intended to pickpocket her tattered purse. Barracudas, beware little piranhas, I murmured as I moved out of view. I finally reached the corner of Mulberry, stopped, and scanned the other options on that corner until I spotted them to my right, heading down Mulberry toward the docks. Just as I thought. The who I was speaking to was beyond me. I guess I took stock that I had survived another night in the points and now had a lead on what might unfold before me. With as much stealth as I possess, I raced along Mulberry Street, and in my haste, I closed the distance to barely half a block behind the quartet. I could not see the boy as the three imposing dark figures were surrounding him. Only when we moved several blocks toward the docks along the battery did I notice the men had produced rather odd-looking walking sticks long and darkly metallic, as if made from the highly polished gunmetal, gleaming in the meager reflective light. I had not noticed the sticks before, and this piece of male accoutrement would have surely caught my eye, for I possessed a rather large and tasteful collection of walking sticks. The night air was becoming chilled along the riverfront, yet for some reason I could not discern, I became acutely aware that I might not be the only one doing the following. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end, as if, like a predator caught up in chasing his prey, I never bothered to take note that a larger predator was on my heels. I did my best to convince myself that it was nothing more than the thrill of oncoming adventure that had me so on the edge and keyed up. This is not your game, I stopped suddenly as the voice played upon my ear, as if whispered to me and me alone. I looked around and found no one else, save for the quartet moving off further the longer I stayed and tried to figure out just what happened. The only sounds were my quick and panicked breaths. You should go home. This is not for you. I spun around, only to find my breathing and most assuredly the rapid beating of my heart keeping me company. Damn it all, that infernal voice! At first I might have mistaken it for my own inner voice, warning me to be wary of what I was doing, but upon review, I realized that voice bore little resemblance to mine at all, though somehow I knew I had heard it before. Who in blazes could it be? I had precious little time to think as my conundrum foursome made their way just beyond where I could make them out. I renewed my efforts to close the distance. A few moments later, I found myself only ten or so feet behind them, worrying now that whatever throng recently occupied this area had thinned out to a few people along the waterfront. I decided to duck into one of the building doorways to allow a tad more distance between me and my quarry trying not to draw too much attention upon myself. The ruse worked, as I observed that one of the men to the rear happened to glance back just as I slipped from view into the darkened doorway. Rather than suddenly appearing along the path at a later time, I decided to dart across the street and appear as if I had approached from dockside, merely paralleling their advance down the road. It was then that I felt the pursuer being pursued again only now it seemed to overtake me and whip along the street as a gust of air came from out of nowhere and yet carried none of the chill night air with it. The breeze felt oddly warm and held a very familiar scent, though I could not recall, even with every part of my being working upon it, where I had smelled it before. So now I had a voice to pair with the olfactory sensation of a moment ago. I knew the two connected themselves somehow, 
I stalled momentarily as I contemplated this before picking up the pace along the sidewalk nearest the docks, lest I lose my quarry altogether. After a couple of blocks, I closed the distance between us within half a block. We had traversed three full blocks at this point when they suddenly turned down a dark alleyway. This could not bode well for the boy. Even so, I could not fathom why he would be in the company of such queer Russian figures in this part of town. Two of the men were sleek, with dark features and smartly clipped beards. They were encased in stylish black suits, and their waistcoats were some of the finest damask-looking silver silk I had ever beheld. My eyes roved to their more than fetching walking sticks. This feature allowed me to spot them. As I came into the entrance of the alleyway, I paused. This alley gave no quarter for relief from a survival standpoint, for it was not open to the sky above, but a closed brick tunnel of a passage. Never a good idea to enter unless you knew all access points to and from the enclosure. I did not relish putting myself through this, but I would not shirk my course now. I peered and squinted as best I could to discern what little the light afforded me, which was not much. Nothing. Not but the dwindling echo of the men's footsteps in the far end. Well, at least they've not dispatched with the lad. I walked closer to the opening and placed a palm against its surface. I turned my head a little to determine if my ears could pick up what my eyes could not. Stealing all the auditory proudness at my disposal, I concentrated on blocking the sounds from the remaining cacophonous ramblings of the dockside street and into the dark vacuum of the tunnel. When all hope nearly escaped me, I heard something which made my heart race. So, are you sure that the requisite number of bodies have been procured? Without a doubt, sir, just as you required, and I have them assembling as we speak to the right of the shanty, as you'll see. But remember, I promised each of them a half dollar as a token of your promise to provide them with better lives once they reach the West Coast. The boy carried himself well within these imposing figures around him, but I could not believe my ears, for if they did not deceive me, and I had no reason to think that they had, this lad established himself firmly in the trade of trafficking people to the West Coast. I realized I came up short on the very important point of the boy's words. What West Coast could he mean? The Pacific? Quite a feat, I admitted. Surely he meant the West Coast of Europe. But when I quickly explored that option, I found that did not make sense either. Why would anyone agree to make the trek back to where they so recently fled? It had to be the western coast of this continent. They cleared the tunnel. Their voices ceased to echo back in my direction. I had to press further along for a better vantage point. Well done, young Master Liam. Rest assured, they will have a better life. You cannot help but have a better one after the repugnant existence of this hellish squalor. Oi, that's me home you're rambling on about there. Silence. Liam had crossed the line. He may have the right of it, but as my father had been fond of saying, when in such circumstances, where you are clearly in a one-down position, you could be dead right as well, which did you little good for the effort. I began to creep slowly and as quietly as I could through the tunnel to the back of the courtyard where the quartet conversed. A snicker all around met the boy's impertinence. Well said, young Liam. So noted. I meant you no harm. Just an observation that even you have to acknowledge. Your life, such as it is, is not the height of aristocracy now, is it? No, but that's how I came to be under your employ, sir. I mean no disrespect by it. Just mindful of me ways and make known the mistake about how low they are. 
But if I have anything to say about it, there's going to be a change in my life, and for the better, too. Another laugh, this time echoed by the three gentlemen in chorus. Come now, Master Liam, let us settle accounts then, shall we? Ippolit Ivanovich, do go and get these people processed through the warehouse. See to it that they are housed in the upper Hudson floor and begin the sedative as soon as everyone is settled in. You know what to do with the children. Send Alexei to me so we can make final processing arrangements. I had entered the courtyard and had the good fortune of finding some discarded crates and barrels near the mouth of the alley passage with which to hide myself. They afforded me some cover from which I could observe the men entering one of the doors leading to a small shanty structure raised above the ground. A young man of no more than twenty approached them. He too appeared immaculately dressed for such a nefarious operation. Liam was correct. Next to the shanty was a collection of about seventy-five people of varying age and creed, all of lowly immigrant class. At this late hour, some of them had sleeping children, either upon their father's shoulders or in the crook of their mother's bosoms. They were obviously recently arrived immigrants. Some still had the weary look of prolonged travel plainly upon their faces. To their left, a mass of luggage and belongings stood carefully arranged as if first- or second-class accommodations lay in the crowd's immediate future. The two men, bringing Liam with them, moved up the short stairs to the porch, which creaked from rot and overuse. Its oddly slanted shingled roof of dark forest green that had seen a more colorful day seemed strangely out of place for this industrial structure, as if the house had always stood here and the surrounding behemoth of a building sprang up around it. Grimy paned windows to either side of a Dutch door, coupled with a rotting stairs and porch, gave the building the apparition of a man's face, all withered with age. The dilapidated roof, slanted slightly askew, completed the visage of a man wearing a funny sort of tilted hat. The stilts upon which the porch stood sagged from overuse and age. After the bottom half of the door was closed, the gas lamp bloomed into brightness and illuminated what little was viewable through the years of city filth occluding the windows. A burst of light crackled in the night sky, but not so high that it rose up above the courtyard warehouse. The people collectively took in an awestruck gasp of air, mesmerized by the glowing orb. I found I, too, was caught up by that glowing light, undulating whites and blues and little sparks trailing into the night sky. It seemed controlled from the tip of a pullet stick. When he moved forward, I felt myself pulled along with them. My progress was stymied and with a sudden unseen force thrusting me back into my hiding spot. That infernal voice filled my every sense, blackening the world around me, completely obscuring the hypnotic pull the glowing orb had upon me. Stay put. Do not engage these men. The black surrounding me faded and the world came back to me. Despite the warning, I was in the thick of it now, as I knew my adventure had finally begun. That was S.A. Collins, or as we know him, Baz, with uh, a reading from Beware Mohawks Bearing Gifts. S.A. Collins also runs another podcast called Rote, where you can meet uh, queer writers as he interviews them about their works and about themselves. So uh, look out for the Rote podcast somewhere on the interweb. Anyway, that's it from me for another episode of Pride Reads. I'm Kevin Clare. Join me next time when we have another author reading from their queer work. Until then, bye. <laughs>